What makes HWC a unique engineering firm in the state of Indiana is that HWC has a dedicated team of economic development professionals coming from former local government roles, former AIM positions, or former elected official positions. The individuals at HWC bring to the table a better and broader understanding of municipal needs, as well as your needs as leaders of cities and towns. HWC Engineering would love to get to know you and work with you on your next project. Please reach out to Josh Good at 317-646-2288 or at jgood, J-G-O-O-D-E, at hwcengineering.com. Welcome to AIM Hometown Innovations Podcast. This podcast is designed to offer insights, best practices, and innovative solutions for the challenges facing Hoosier cities and towns. Each edition will offer ideas and inspiration while showcasing the talent and commitment of Indiana's local leaders. Enjoy the program. Welcome to AIM Hometown Innovations Podcast. I'm Matt Greller with AIM. Our guest today is Dr. Mike Hicks. Dr. Hicks, welcome to the podcast. Good to be with you, Matt. Thanks again. Uh, I think most of our members are familiar with Dr. Hicks, but for those who aren't, uh, he is currently the head of Ball State Center for Business and Economic Research. He is Ball State University's George and Francis Ball Distinguished Professor of Economics uh, probably most of you know him as because he writes a syndicated column that runs regularly across Indiana and that <clears throat> often focuses on local uh, public policy, state, and the economy and where they intersect. A couple other fun facts about Dr. Hicks. He's a retired Army Reserve inf- infantryman, uh, served on the faculty of the Air Force Institute of Technology, in addition to Marshall University and the University of Tennessee. Uh, so he's a well-rounded individual and a person perfectly suited to talk about issues impacting cities and towns across the, the state. Dr. Hicks, before we jump into some of the economic and public policy topics, I think everyone recognizes that you are a prolific tweeter. Uh, people fall, fall on both sides of this. You've had some pretty epic uh, engagements, I would say, with followers of yours and people that comment on things you tweet. Um, People often fall on both sides of this issue. People that contact us on Twitter, some ignore, some choose to engage. Uh, You've engaged more than once or twice in the last few years. Uh, Tell us why that's important to you and some of your more memorable exchanges and why you use social media and Twitter to get your message out on important economic development topics. Well, I mean, that's a great question. I'm not a, a digital native, right? I'm 60, so I'm not accustomed to communicating in this way. But the there are such a large number of people who get information through Twitter. Um, there's Econ Twitter and Mill Twitter. Uh, there, uh, it is probably more instant than Facebook, and and it's a really good way to connect uh, your research to and you know, sort of pithy small points to people who might be interested in just a couple of takeaways and then um, share that, you know, a link so that they can read a longer piece, either a a newspaper column, a a news story, a technical study, or something in between some of the long form 
journalism that I do on my Substack page. Um, and it's also a good way to meet other people who are interested in the same space. So, um, you know, I communicate an awful lot with Aaron Wren. Uh, he, he's a Hoosier. He's had a platform talking about urban rural issues and economic growth. We don't agree all the time, but it, there's a lot to be taken away from both our agreements and disagreements in these areas. Um, and, and I think it's just a very good platform if you're um, respectful uh, of one another and you know try to communicate your ideas. It works pretty well. I don't always meet those personal goals, but uh, you know it's sometimes good to get in there and speak plainly um, when ideas are bad. Uh, and and I, I just find that that's a it's it's good to have as many platforms to reach as many people as you possibly can and. Uh, not be siloed in the academic journals as so many of my colleagues tend to be. Well, you're one of the best followers, at least in my my Twitter followers, and it's always fun. And in fact, nobody's safe. But I think you uh, let JD Senator JD Vance know the other day that that you didn't uh, agree with his position on an ordnance shortage issue that that we're seeing in the United States military right now. Yeah, what a what a disappointment uh, from someone who wrote a very interesting book about his life experience and and that was worth reading. And my staff and I read it. Uh, and then you know, I, I guess part of the challenge that I have is I don't, I don't have to run for elected office like so many of your listeners do, and that uh, I don't I, I try to tell everybody the same story all the time and not try to gauge a different answer for everybody. So I talk to my freshman college kids the same way I do to legislators uh, and I don't have to calibrate different stories but you know you can certainly get on Twitter and see people trying to dumb down the message to the second third grade level in effort to try to uh, accommodate new followers and that's that's not my goal I try to be you know be pretty straightforward with everybody well, it's appreciated and, and fun to follow. Let's uh, jump into some of the work that you and your colleagues have been doing. Uh, you've been really diving into this post-pandemic workforce issue uh, quite a bit. While we're going to learn, I'm, I'm sure, a lot more about this in the coming weeks at a few of our events coming up, educational events, conferences. Can you maybe tease your research here, especially uh, in the area of the remote, remote workforce? Right. That That's... Um... Boy, that's an evolving question. So in the three years pre-pandemic, we saw a very slow growth in what we would call work from home or remote work. Um, that was enabled by technology. And there's always been people working at home, right? Two, 300 years ago, work from home was really common. Um, but uh, internet and technology enabled work from home had risen to about 5.6% of of college graduates. So there were people working at home doing production of, you know, websites or, or whatever from, from home. And then the pandemic came and all of these technologies that we had maybe heard of like Zoom and, and, and meeting and all the other technologies exploded. We all used it. We all had to work from home. And we discovered some things about that um, one was that for many industries, for some uh, many occupations, uh, people working at home were more productive than they were at work, and certainly the cost for the business of allowing somebody to work from home was was much lower. You didn't have to have that high-priced office space downtown, and so a number of businesses transitioned to full-time work, 
we're now three years into that experience. And so we're playing around with what the right model is. Um, right now, it looks like um, here in Indiana, which is about the national average, about half of college graduates are 48, 47%, depending on the survey of the month, um, are working from home, either full or part-time. Of those, about half are full-time workers. Um, and so the, the preponderance of college graduates are still at work full-time, about half full-time or uh, partially. But what that means is about one in four college graduates are home all the time. It's a smaller number as you drop down the level of educational attainment, but it's still a substantial share. So all, overall, about one in four Hoosier workers or a little over a million are working from home to some degree. That's um, just a stunning number, right? Manufacturing is at 140, 540,000 workers right now. We've got nearly twice that many people who are either full or part-time working at home. And so that does a lot of different things. It changes the type of occupational choice that people make if they need flexibility at work. So it used to be if you were planning on having children, you wanted a flexible career to stay home with kids, you might be in healthcare, like nursing where you go in and out or school teacher. Those were dominated by young women who were choosing those careers because of their flexibility and family friendliness. Well, now you could be an accountant or a lawyer or a college professor and have that same flexibility. So there's a big labor market issue there. What interests me more is the geography of work, where and, and home, right? So for a lot of people, remote work is going to have broken that requirement to be within commuting distance of your work. And it's, that, it's a half a million Hoosiers that are completely severed from their need to be near work, 22 million Americans. So that's the biggest geographic uh, shock to labor that we've ever seen. Um, and I mean, it's, it's an order of magnitude bigger than the baby boom. And so that gives you a sense of how big this is in numbers of people. And it really means that municipalities are gonna have to scramble to think about, you know, how do we keep people here who can now move anywhere who used to be here because of a, a big office building or you know, a back office financial services that are now being done at home. Um, and then, you know, how, not just can I keep people here, but can I make this a place that people would really wish to stay? So that's, my interest is more in that than the labor, you know, conditions within labor markets, in part because I think we're going to be solving those problems in businesses and workplaces on our, without the help of economists for the next 20 some years. I've said this many times, Mike, the, uh, you know, one of my sons is about to enter the workforce and in, in August here, in his new company that he's starting his first real job with, told him he can live anywhere in the United States as long as he's within 90 minutes of a major airport. Um, you know, and that was really the only stipulation he had. So of course my mind immediately went to, how do, I, how do we keep him close to home, relatively close to home and, and what's he looking for? And it's just been a fascinating process to, to watch that unfold, to see what, he and his friends that, you know, his roommates he's gonna live with, they're looking for in an area that they wanna live and those kinds of things, which is a, a great lead into the next topic I wanted to, to bring up to you. We talk about it all the time. Uh, I think the first time I heard this phrase was 2006 or seven, I was up in Michigan with one of my colleagues and, 
And he said, what are you guys doing as an organization with place-based development? And I kind of looked at him and was like, what, what's that mean? And now it's just a, a you know, just common vernacular in what we do. You were probably the first economist that I heard talk about it in a significant way, in a meaningful way. Now we've got lots of data to back up that people are looking for amenities and, and quality of place where they want to live and, and invest in. So let's just dive into that a little bit. Um, you know, when you're talking to state and local officials about the economics of place, what are the key points you try to convey? Yeah, great question. Um, and I've been trying to talk about this a long time, but economists have known for you know 40 years now that there's been a movement away from people following jobs to jobs following people, and that. There's a couple of big trends for that, the decline in manufacturing employment. When I was a lad, you know, 50 years ago, one in three Americans worked in factories and there was a, the, the location of factories then drove a ton of other business, probably maybe 60% of the American economy located uh, near factories or around factories because we were so manufacturing intensive. You know, it's now seven, 8% of the economy um, the, the average factory is much smaller, much more geographically diffuse. So the location decisions of, of factories, which are the mobile parts of our economy uh, geographically, don't matter very much anymore. Um, and so people for a long time have been able to go where they wish. And there's always some job for almost everybody. Like 40 or 50 years ago, uh, the college, college of Business was started, I think, in 1970 or 72 then our majors would have been available in some jobs in maybe a thousand out of 3000 plus US counties. Now there's probably 2,800 counties have an occupation for every one of our majors. And so uh, the geography of choice is just huge now. And so uh, it stands, and people have always tried to pick good places, but a couple of confluence events. One is most people now didn't have to go to a factory to work, they could go wherever they wished to work. Uh, and then with that being the case, we started seeing cities differentiate themselves on the characteristics that people liked. And at the same time, we got this thing called the internet, which gave us a huge amount of information about the differences in schools and communities and you know all the things that you would have to learn by going someplace and driving around and learn imperfectly. Now you can find out quickly on on the internet. And I think that has really driven migratory changes for mobile Americans, which are mostly college graduates or young professionals and you know, young people. So your, your son is gonna be a font of knowledge about what's driving this, this cohort. As you know, with uh, younger children, Mike, it's just trying to get that information out of them that will be the uh, be the challenge. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and, and and watching what they do, not what they say they do. I mean, one of the lessons we've had, uh, you know, I'm a and I'm at the tail end of the baby boomer, and really looks like the Gen Xers are doing exa living exactly like we did. We lived in urban places when we were in our 20s, and then we moved to the suburbs to raise kids. And so the experience of younger generations seems to be very much mimicking that. And even more so in COVID where we see this sort of exodus from down, large downtown urban centers, you know, down, uh, downtown Chicago or downtown Indy to suburban counties or suburban areas 
within the county. And I think that that very much mimics the baby boom and their parental experience. Yeah, in fact, we're about to be empty nesters here my, ourselves, and we're talking about a little town just down the road, Franklin, Indiana, that's done a really good job of sort of creating this micro urban area. Everything's walkable, lots of amenities in the in the small downtown area. It's a, a great spot. You and I have, uh, we've talked a lot about this next topic, or at least a couple months ago, we started talking about it. You and I and Jennifer Simmons from our office and David Terrell from, from your team about the the state's going to convene this state local tax review tax task force, it's a mouthful to say, to review the, the state's entire tax system and, and maybe identify opportunities to improve it. So the question I guess I have for you is if you were in charge of drafting uh, their agendas for the meeting, their first meeting, what would you put on it and why? Yeah, wow, that's a great question. So I'm always a fan of bottom-up review of your tax and spending system. I think it's often very healthy for everybody to get a sense of why we have the tax instruments that we do, why they're administered in the way they are, um, what are the benefits and limitations of those. Um, you know, we've made a number of big changes to our tax system. So I, over the past couple of decades, I, I think the early um, uh, agenda items would be to frame the types of questions we would wish to ask. You know, why do you have an income tax? Um, what does it do for you? And what does it, what are its limitations? What does it do uh, if you were eliminated? Same thing with sales tax, same thing with corporate net income, same thing with property taxes. Um, and then, you know, talk about where Indiana compares to other states that we think we're, com we're comparable to, and then maybe have an empiricist select those. A lot of times we say, oh, we wanna compete with Tennessee. Is there anything about Tennessee that we should we think we're really competing on? Is that a, a good comparable state? I mean, I'm a, a former Tennessean uh, and, and you know, so I have fondness for the state, but I'm not sure that's the right comparison state for us. But you know, if that's true, let's let's do that sort of work. So I would start early on. What are the types of questions we want to ask, and and then how do we want them answered? Because I'm always afraid when I get, you know, this seems like a, a academic epistemological question is how do we know what we know? Uh, and so you know, you hear in circle policy circles, oh, the states that eliminate their income tax, they do really well. Is that true? Um, you know, Indiana just grew faster in personal income than either Florida or Texas last year. You know, uh, and so I, I, you know, the GDP in California is kicking Texas's ass. Uh, and so I'm not at all convinced that the narrative that we hear from people who are advocating a position really has empirical substance. So I would, I would want to have somebody who could answer the question, you know, what does the income tax do for us is it is and not just rely on the anecdote of the economic development community, which may not have the best interest of our citizens at heart. And even if they do, they're not acquiring information in a way that's sort of formal and rigorous and comparable. And I think those are what I would like to see. Very, you know, not very sexy stuff up front. What questions do you ask and how do you how do you answer them is really what I would be looking for. So do you see a migration, you talked a little bit about it, from 
the coasts of this country inward to the Midwest? Do you see that as a potential phenomenon in the next decade or two? I, I do, uh, but I think what we're going to see more is continued migration to middle-sized urban counties, right? So not... Um, so what we've observed, and part of this is a cost issue, right? If you live in San Francisco, uh, at some point, you just can't pay for the amenities that you think you get from San Francisco or, or King County, uh, you know, Seattle, King County, Washington, or Los Angeles. And so there are going to be people who move out of those. That eases the price pressure. The loss of office jobs means more housing supply. So there's some you know, equilibrating forces that could move people back. So, you know, COVID and remote work caused people to spin away from cities, excess building capacity and, and the loss of people could bring some back. So I don't think we have a good answer about what, what's happening there, but it would seem to me that uh, with urban density in so many of these places so bad and no easy relief for housing that we would see smaller sized towns in Indianapolis, Columbus, Louisville doing better in the next uh, few decades, and particularly in the counties that are just that you know you can add people to Hamilton, Boone County, and Johnson County, and Shelby County without driving up home prices. So those are places where there's a lot of population expansion possible, and our tax system could play a role in that. You know, but again. The, the, the question is also that the spending system, the way we spend that money, the services, the mix and quality of services that we provide are probably going to play a bigger role. That's what the quality of life finding has been for 30 years. And so when we ask about taxes, we also got to, you know, we, we also got to not just say we're going to hold services constant, but what services are people caring more about uh, rather than just the tax rate? Great and insightful information for sure. Uh, before we let you go, one last uh, more personal question, I guess. I don't know a lot of economists with a, a military background like you have. Uh, how has that helped you as an economist and, and maybe what motivated you to focus your work in the areas of state and local public policy? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, being uh, having been a soldier for a long time, um, um, really gave me um, a couple of things that helped me. The first one is almost all the teaching that I do in the classroom or elsewhere was informed by the non-commissioned officers that I worked with. I was an infantry officer, I was a commander and XO of a basic training company. So if you wanna learn how to teach, watch drill sergeants for 16 hours a day for three years, you know, six or seven days a week. So that's number one. I think, um, you know, just generally being very plain spoken and attempting to, to not mask what you're saying in academic jargon. Uh, and, and maybe I'm doing that in this podcast, but compared to many of my colleagues, I'm, I'm far less susceptible to it. So I think that has really been important when you're, when you're working in a, you know, in a, in a life or death scenario, one that's really important to have yourself understood. You want to speak very cleanly, sometimes redundantly cleanly. Um, and in terms of public policy, I did like many people. I went to graduate school and I was, you know, just absolutely uh, enamored with all the federal policy that you do. And you study those things in graduate program when you're learning the tools of economics. And the very last year I got offered a visiting position 
um, in, in Tennessee. My wife was pregnant, so we decided to stay there for a year. And I didn't know a lot about state and local public policy. So I sat in a public, a public administration class um, as an, I was an assistant professor. So I went to this undergraduate class with a professor of political science. And she started out saying, uh, the first thing she said was, all of you are here at political science or economics, and you're just love state and or you know federal policy, and you're all you know watching the evening news every day. But let me tell you, the real bread and butter issues that affect Americans around the country are decided on state and local public policy issues. And that, if you're really interested in, in public policy and affecting people's lives and making a difference, it's not very sexy. You may not get famous at it, but it's a place that you can make a difference. And that stuck with me. And over the next two or three years, I thought, God, this woman was really, I can't remember her name, really, really right. And so that's really been uh, the, a driving force. And my colleagues here at Ball State, David Terrell and Dagny Falk have been consistent reminders of the interesting work in the, what mayors do and, and county commissioners and uh, folks at the state level. Well, Mike, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Great to have you. We look forward to, of course, continuing our longtime partnership with you and Ball State and our Mayor's Institute. Uh, thanks again to you. And you just mentioned them, David Terrell, for all the great information you give us in the partnership. Certainly appreciate you joining the podcast. Thank you. No, thanks for having me on. It's been a delight.